This week, we are talking about 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament on the subject of love. Uh, In fact, it's not unlikely that even those who didn't grow up in church will have heard or are familiar with this passage. You you see it everywhere. Uh, You see it at weddings, uh, all over the place. So I asked my kids this week to define love as we were studying and looking at this passage, as I was looking at it, I said, can you guys tell me when you think of love, what what does that mean to you? And my oldest daughter, who is right about 10 years old, said, well, hmm, she thought for a minute and she goes, well, I don't just want to quote Olaf from Frozen. And uh, I said, what, what is it that Olaf says about love? And so uh, she proceeded to explain to me Olaf and what he said about love. And what I thought was this morning, instead of me trying to explain Olaf's views, I would just show it to you for a moment. So uh, we have a video clip from Frozen. We're going to look at Olaf's definition of love. So where's Hans? What happened to your kiss? I was wrong about him. It wasn't true love but we ran all the way here please Olaf you can't stay here you'll melt I am not leaving here until we find some other act of true love to save you do you happen to have any ideas I don't even know what love is that's okay I do love is putting someone else's needs before yours like you know how Kristoff brought you back here to Hans and left you forever Kristoff Loves me? Wow, you really don't know anything about love, do you? Olaf, you're melting. Some people are worth melting for. You're just maybe not right this second. Some people are worth melting for, right? Olaf's definition of love is great. In fact, it is a biblical definition of love. What does he say? Love is putting someone else's needs ahead of your own, putting someone else's needs ahead of your own. And I love that, seeing that particularly in a popular movie, because ordinarily when we watch movies, their concept of love is either something along the lines of lust, right? It is some sort of attraction or feeling. Maybe it's something along the lines of just sentimentality. I feel something. So we think about infatuation sometimes when we think of love. In our culture, we think about lust. We think about maybe just warm, fuzzy feelings. But Olaf actually hits right at the heart of it. That love is an attitude toward another person that says, I care about you enough that I'm going to put your needs ahead of my needs. And that is a biblical definition of love. Now, like I said, all of us have read 1 Corinthians 13, most likely at some point. We've heard it recited at weddings. It is a beautiful passage, uh, one of the most eloquent passages in the Bible. Uh, But often when we hear it or when we see it, it is paired with uh, a sort of sentimentality, kind of warm, fuzzy feelings that are said to define love. So maybe uh, you've seen it in a context like this. Uh, There's 1 Corinthians 13, and it is on a blue box Uh, with a baby angel with feathery wings and a satiny sort of background, right? That's a precious moments figurine. And, And it's cute, but it doesn't really capture the essence of what Paul is talking about when he talks about love. Because love is more than warm, fuzzy feelings. And by the way, angels are usually scarier than that when we see them in the Bible. 
But as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, instead what we see is that love is this attitude that puts the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Love is what motivated Jesus to die for us. John 3.16, probably the first passage that most of us memorize. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son. It was love that motivated God to give Jesus. John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That type of love also is said to be the defining mark of God's people. And particularly as you read a book like 1 John, John says that if we love one another, we reflect God himself because God is love. That this type of love defines God's character, but also ought to define the people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. All right, we talked about that a little bit last week as we talked about the Lord's Supper. And what, one of the things we saw was that in the first Corinthian church, they were not participating in the Lord's Supper with an attitude of love. Remember, they were participating in the Lord's Supper uh, with a, in a way that created divisions and dividing lines and it exalted the wealthy and it pushed the poor down and they were divided along these social class lines. And Paul says that is not the love of Jesus Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 13 now, he actually is going to define what is the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, which actually Pat will come in and talk about next week. We're rolling a little bit out of order. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul also talks about spiritual gifts. And he says, just like you can participate in the Lord's Supper in a way that is unloving, you also can use your spiritual gifts in a way that is unloving. In fact, all of your service to the church, all of your ministry to other people can be nullified and have no eternal value if it is done without love. You can teach, you can lead, you can serve, you can even die as a martyr, but do it without love. And if you do that, Paul actually says that is nothing. It counts for nothing if it is not motivated and empowered with the love of God in Jesus Christ. The Corinthian church, I think often like our own culture, had this real struggle with wanting to find status and favor with those around them. So they not only set up divisions based upon socioeconomic lines, but they set up divisions even based on spiritual gifts. If I can speak tongues, I'm better than you. If I'm a prophet, if I'm a teacher, Whatever it is, I'm better than you. And instead of using those gifts to edify the body of Christ, they used them in a way that was rude, that was self-seeking, that was boastful, that was envious. And so all of those spiritual gifts, all of their service, ultimately had no eternal value because it didn't reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And as we move through 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's primary point to them is this. Love makes our ministry matter. Love makes our ministry matter. And here by ministry, I'm not saying this only applies to those who would say they're in some sort of full-time vocational Christian work. But for all of us in the body of Christ, we have spiritual gifts that have been given to us by God and we are to use those spiritual gifts for the building up, for the encouragement, for the edification of the body. But we can do that in a way that is without love. And what Paul says is that it is love that ought to motivate our use of those spiritual gifts. So if I am serving in the nursery, 
or if I am teaching up front, or if I am engaged in evangelism, or if I am an encourager, all of those things ought to be defined with the love of Jesus that says, I want to put your needs ahead of mine. And all of those things can be done in a way that lacks eternal significance if they're without love. So Paul begins by saying, without love, our gifts don't matter. And he says it that starkly. Look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let me stop there for a moment. This is a shocking statement because, again, to the Corinthians, tongues seem to have been the most valued gift. And and what we're talking about by tongues here is is what you see in like Acts chapter 2 that draws the church together where all of these men and women are gathered from all of the areas of the world. And they all speak different languages and yet Peter gets up and as he begins to speak, everybody can hear the gospel in their own language and as they begin to speak with one another, tongues of fire appear over their heads and miraculously, people who speak different languages can speak each other's language and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, even if I can do that, even if I can have that kind of gift, even if I could speak in the language of angels up in heaven, but I do it without love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There's a way that Betsy could have played the drums this morning that would not have contributed to the songs that we sang, right? She could have just rode that cymbal the whole time, right? Sat back there and said, look, I can play a cymbal, right? And just made it louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. And you would have said, man, that's a loud cymbal, but not valuable, to what they're trying to do up here. Paul says, that is who you are if you use spiritual gifts apart from love. Even if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In other words, he says, I can get gifts from God, and I can even use those gifts. I can even give those gifts to you, but do it in a way that is unloving. I don't know if you have ever received a gift that had some sort of uh, implied statement attached to it. Right? I read a, a, an article about some of the worst Christmas gifts that people give. They said, one of the worst is a gift that is designed to be all about me and not you. Right? So one lady said, one year uh, we were uh, struggling to pay our bills. We had a new baby. We'd moved into a house. She said, my husband gave me diamond earrings that cost more than we could afford. And she said, you know why he gave them to me? Because he wanted to impress his mom. Right? That's not a gift motivated from love. One lady said, my mother always gives me expensive nightgowns that are two sizes too small. You ladies know the message that's implied in that gift. One woman said, uh, my husband one year gave me a very nice purse. And she said, because we had little kids, I didn't use it a whole lot. I didn't want it to get messed up. She said, I loved that purse, but I kind of set it aside for later use. She said, the next year at Christmas, he wrapped it up again and he gave it to me again and said, since you didn't use it last year, I'm giving it to you again. That's a gift that is not designed to benefit 
the other person. It's designed to make a statement. Paul says, this is how the Corinthians have been using their gifts. I could get up here this morning and I could be eloquent and I could be clear and I could do all of those things in a way that would communicate contempt for you. You could serve in the nursery because you want to be noticed. You can even be the guy that always stays and does the dishes and cleans up and sets up the chairs because you want people to applaud. And Paul says, whatever gift we have been given, if we utilize it to build up ourselves or to push others down, it has no eternal value because our gifts are designed to help others draw closer to Jesus and to communicate to the world the love of Jesus Christ. He even goes so far as to say, if I give up my body to be burned, but I do it without love, it profits me nothing. And I read that and I thought, how could a person give up their body as a martyr without love? And it didn't take me long to say, look around our world. We have suicide bombers, right? Why do they give their bodies as martyrs? Not out of love, but out of hatred, out of revenge, or out of a desire to be noticed and exalted, even in death. And Paul says, even martyrdom, apart from love, he uses the word nothing. It has no eternal value. And here's the reason why. When Jesus gave his body, why did he do it? Out of love. He did it for us. He died and he rose again for us. That is the good news. Apart from the love of God in Jesus Christ, we have no life. And all who trust in him have eternal life. And what motivated his sacrifice was love. So Paul says, consider how we use our gifts. Now, uh, none of us are ever going to have motives that are 100% pure. Most of us are not 100% anything. And that's not what Paul is getting at. If we wait for motives that are 100% pure, we'll never do anything. Instead, he's saying this. If your primary objective is to draw attention to yourself, to communicate some sort of angry message to another, to get something back, right? All of us know what it looks like in a marriage setting or in a roommate context to do something because you want something. He says, if that's the reason we're using our gifts, then they don't matter in the grand scheme of eternity because they don't communicate the message of Jesus who died for us out of love. So then he goes on to say, okay, then what does that love look like? What does it look like to use my gifts, whether I'm a teacher, whether I serve, whether I'm a leader, whether I'm an evangelist or an encourager? What does it look like to use those gifts with the love of God? And so he goes on and he he says this, true love reflects Christ's character. True love reflects Christ's character. And what I mean is verses four through seven are all characteristics that are God's characteristics toward us. So look at verses four through seven, and we're going to camp here for a few minutes this morning because this really is the heart of this passage, starting in verse four. Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. 
It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So he walks through, here are the characteristics of love. If you want to know what the the Corinthian church looked like, just say the opposite of everything in this passage. They were impatient, they were rude, they were envious, they were boastful. And they were doing all of that in the worship service. So one person would get up to speak or prophesy and another person would interrupt. People would serve because they wanted something back. People would use their knowledge so others would notice them. And they were all of these negative characteristics. And Paul says the love of God is not like that. And he gives us a a list of characteristics and he begins with love is patient. Love is patient. What that means is love doesn't rush other people. Love is an attitude that says, I'm going to wait for you rather than try to control you. I'm going to wait for God to work in your heart and in your life rather than trying to make you adhere to my schedule for how you should be or what you should do. A few years ago, uh, when my kids were quite small, uh, my wife and the kids surprised me with a, a little framed uh, paper here that has their footprints from when they were real little. So it's my son, and then this is my daughter. This is several years ago. Uh, and then my, uh, at the time, our middle one was two years old. And there's a poem attached to it called Walk a Little Slower. And some of you have heard this. It says, Walk a little slower, Daddy, said a little child so small. I'm following in your footsteps, and I don't want to fall. Sometimes your steps are very fast. Sometimes they are hard to see. So walk a little slower, Daddy, for you are leading me. Someday when I'm all grown up, you're what I want to be. Then I will have a little child who will want to follow me. And I would want to lead just right and, I, and know that I was true. So walk a little slower, Daddy, for I must follow you. I love it. And I keep this in my office to remind me about this, about patience, not only toward my kids, but toward others. So as I walk through the grocery store, and you've, you've all probably been there if you have kids, you know that you're, you're on a mission, right? And you're walking and they're several paces behind. And you want to go, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, right? And it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago, I thought, one day this will be reversed. <laughs> and how do I want them to treat me when I'm going like this, right? Dad, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Patience says, I will wait for you. I will wait for you to catch up. It acts that way toward others in our daily interactions, but also as we pray and hope and wait for others to mature as we pray and hope and wait for the flaws and the sins in their lives to go away over time. When I was in my first year on staff here at Grace a number of years ago, uh, twice within that year, uh, and I'm embarrassed to even say this, twice within that year, I forgot to show up here on Sunday morning to baptize people that I had committed to baptize during the week. I mean, I did the interview. I talked with them. I even walked them up here during the week. Here's the baptismal. I'll be here such and such a time. And then I I literally, I got a call that morning saying, hey, Matt, where are you? Oh, I'm getting ready for church. Well, there's, there's a couple of people here waiting for you to baptize them in like five minutes. Now, the first time it happened, you go, okay, anybody could make a mistake. The second time, it becomes a character flaw, right? And what struck me at the time was uh, 
I, I'll be honest, I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fired. I'm going to walk in and that's it. And yet uh, the, the men who filled in for me, as well as uh, Brian, our senior pastor, they were so patient. Now, they helped me. They said, you need to find a system in your life. So this doesn't happen again. They were so patient and saw it as an opportunity to demonstrate the patience of Christ toward me. That is the patience of God. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9. God is not slow, but he's patient, right? He's not slow about keeping his promises, but what is he? He's patient. Peter says, that's why to him a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day because he wants everybody to have the opportunity to know him. So when we utilize our gifts, when we serve, when we teach, when we lead, we don't do that to pound other people, but to wait and to pray and recognize I'm not in control of others. Love is patient. Love is kind. Secondly, love is kind. And that word kindness in the Greek is the word krestiani. Christiani. It sounds kind of like the word for Christian, Christiani, uh, but they're two separate words. It's interesting. David Garland in one of my commentaries said this, the kindness of Christians in the second century so surprised their pagan counterparts that according to, to Tertullian, they called Christians Christiani, made up of mildness or kindness rather than Christiani. Isn't that interesting? They were so defined by their kindness toward one another. That was how they were labeled. Kindness in the scripture is an attitude of active desire to meet the needs of another person. In Ephesians 2, 7, it's paired with the grace of God, that it was God's grace that motivated his kindness toward us, that he saw we had a need, and in kindness, he met that need in Jesus Christ. Kindness is that attitude that says if somebody else needs encouragement, if somebody else needs knowledge, if somebody else needs support, if someone else needs money, if someone else needs to be served, I will grant that to them not to get something back, but because of the kindness of God that was given to me. And so I actively, not passively, I actively look for the needs of others and seek to meet them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful, he says. It's not envious or boastful. Uh, Another way to translate that boastful is just basically braggy. It's not envious. In other words, envy would say, I want what you have. Everybody has perhaps had a friend or a relative that you look at and you say, I want what that person has. That person has the job or the house or the family that I want. That person has the intelligence that I want. They get A's and I get C's. I had a friend in junior high that always had the hair that I wanted. His hair just naturally seemed straight and it was kind of sandy brown. And I thought, man, I, I, the only way I can get my hair down, at least at that age, was basically to almost shave it, right? It was wild. It was unruly. And I would try to get it down. And my friend had the hair I wanted. And so I would look at him and say, I want what you have. Paul says, no, envy doesn't do that. Instead, envy rejoices when somebody else receives honor that you didn't receive in the body of Christ. You rejoice because ultimately we say it's Jesus Christ who is receiving honor in that person and not that person. Love is not envious. It is not boastful or bragging. Bragging is the other side of envy. It looks at others and says, I'm better than you. It's the other side of that comparison. And we've all known somebody like that. Maybe we are somebody 
like that. But the person that you say, hey, how was your week? And they go, man, it was rough. Just as I was figuring out how to binge 700 pounds, the president of France called me for advice, right? And I had a hard time kind of lifting the weights and talking to the president of France at the same time, but it's okay. I'm here at Sunday at at church now, and my kids are in Sunday school teaching your kids about the Bible, right? And we've all known that person. And what does that do? It isolates, doesn't it? It makes me want to step away from that person. (laughs) Well, if you're better than me, maybe we don't belong in the same room, in the same body, in the same church. Love is not boastful, again, because it recognizes that all of us before Jesus Christ are ultimately desperate and in need of grace. Instead, love encourages and builds up and rejoices. Uh, Several years ago, Shannon and I worked at a, uh, a camp uh, in the Northeast. And the, the CEO of that camp was a man who had been pretty successful in his business life, uh, relatively well-known in his field and in business. And yet what I found was that this man, when he would introduce people to one another, always would puff up the people that he was introducing. So he would introduce me, and at the time when I was a college pastor, he'd go, I want you to meet my friend Matt. Matt is one of the most important college pastors in the whole southern United States, right? And I'd go, who, who are you talking about, right? And, he would, and then you'd be meeting this other person and go, here's my friend Bob, and he's a plumber. And you know what? Bob is the best plumber in the tri-state area. The governor himself calls Bob when his water heater's broken. You go, man, Bob sounds important, right? And you know what that did was it endeared me to that man because he always would look and say, how can I build you up rather than trumpet my own accomplishments, rather than envy what you have? Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Envy and boasting both constitute different forms of arrogance, which he mentions Next, it is not self-seeking or arrogant. Uh, that, both of those words should be in there. Uh, self-seeking is mentioned in, at the beginning of verse 5. Love is not arrogant. Uh, it, it does not act unbecomingly. And then it does not seek its own. Arrogance and seeking its own go together because they contradict the spirit of Philippians 2 or the love that Olaf described up here that uh, the love of God is a love that says, I'm going to put your interests above my own. I'm not so arrogant as to think that what matters to me is most important, right? So uh, our world is incorrect that we ought to love ourselves first, right? All those Oprah reruns are are wrong. But instead we seek to meet the needs of others before ourselves because that is what Jesus did. You don't see throughout the Gospels Jesus saying, you know what, I just need to go find me. Just kind of have a whole lot of me time. You guys are kind of getting old, right? He, he does get direct and he does at times even get frustrated with his disciples. But you know why? Because he wants them to love and serve and reflect God. Even when Jesus pulls away to have what we might call his quiet time. You know what he does, John 17. Who does he pray for? prays for them. And he prays that he would have the strength to die for them, that they would have the unity in the body of Christ that reflects his character. He goes away and he thinks last of those men, his disciples. That's the character of Jesus. Not self-seeking, not arrogant, 
but committed to the needs of the other. Love is not self-seeking, not arrogant. Love is not rude. It's not rude. It's right at the beginning of verse 5. might say does not act unbecomingly in some translations. But a good way to translate that is it's not rude. It's actually polite. Interesting, politeness is a form of kindness. I can speak the truth in a way that doesn't build you up. Some of us will remember a few years ago on the show American Idol, there was this judge, Simon Cowell, right? And he was known for being rude. And if they asked him, why are you so mean? He'd go, no, 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 I'm doing you a favor when I tell you you're the worst person in the history of Western civilization, right? You need to know that truth. But he was just mean as he spoke with the excuse that he was speaking the truth. And that type of thing was going on in the first Corinthian church as well. Those who could teach, those who had knowledge were using it in ways that were unkind. I think a lot of times we think manners are just, you know, politeness is just sort of a, a Southern thing maybe. And, and people in other places don't really have to be polite or kind or, or, or nice with their words toward one another. Uh, the reality is that Paul actually says, no, love is not rude. That, that these, often these standards of how we speak to one another, politeness is actually a way to demonstrate kindness. Uh, my kids have this little Winnie the Pooh book about manners uh, that we used to read when they were little. And, you know, it shows how Winnie the Pooh forgets his manners at a party, right? So he grabs the first of everything on the table. He forgets to say thank you, forgets to express gratitude. He just gets up and leaves without saying goodbye. And everybody at the party goes, what's the deal with Winnie the Pooh? Because when I forget to pause and demonstrate some of this kindness and even, yes, thank you toward another person, it says, I don't care about you, but I only care about my needs. So he says, no, love is not, it's not rude. Straightforward, truthful, direct at times, but not rude. Okay? It's not irritable or resentful. It's not touchy. It doesn't always look for some reason to be offended. Love doesn't fly into a rage if somebody left a cup in the dishwasher or in the sink or if there's crumbs on the table. I used to work at a grocery store in high school, and I really remember one time this man came through the line and he said, can you make sure to separate like my eggs from my bread, you know, so the bread doesn't get mashed, whatever. Well, it was a busy time and somehow in the shuffle that request was forgotten. Either I or the bagger put the eggs in with the bread, Uh, man left, forgot about it until 20 minutes later, he drove back to the store with the bag, put it on the counter, and he goes, look what you did. He goes, you knew, didn't you? He really did. You knew, right? As if I had a plan to do this. You planned this. And I got home and I saw this in my bag and look at my bread. And I said, I'm really sorry. We'll get you some new bread. No, I need to talk to your manager, right? And he was going to take this to the Supreme Court if he had to. (laughs) Okay, that is irritable, resentful, touchy over something that doesn't matter. Okay, get you a new loaf of bread, right? The time you spent driving to and from the store and dealing with this thing is worth more than the bread, okay? Love is not like that. It doesn't walk in here in worship and say, you know, that person doesn't look quite like I think they ought to look for Sunday morning. 
That person said something small to me that set me off, and now I'm going to write about it in my diary for weeks. It's not irritable. And it doesn't keep, resentful means it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. In fact, Paul goes on and says, doesn't take into account, it's not easily provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't write all this stuff down in a little book of wrongs, literally or metaphorically. Some of you may have seen this story just a few weeks ago. There was a man who um, started a business selling envelopes filled with glitter that you could send to your enemies. If somebody had wronged you at some point in the past, you could send them an envelope filled with glitter and they would open it up and it would just explode all over them. Now, what's amazing is he had so many orders so quickly that he had to shut it down. And I read an interview and he said, I didn't think anybody would actually want this. He's like, this is a horrible product. Stop buying it, right? And it highlights that the character of our culture is if you wrong me, I'm going to even out the universe by getting back. If you slight me, you don't invite me to that party, you unfriend me on Facebook, I'm getting you back. And I'll do it however I have to do it. Paul says, no, the love of God in Jesus Christ doesn't do that. Instead, the love of God in Jesus Christ is a love that went to the cross for people who abused him for people who insulted, for people who did not do him right. Now, I want to be clear. It doesn't mean that love never sets boundaries. It doesn't mean that love never has a time where you may have to say, you know what, for the health of both involved, this relationship may need to part ways for a while or even potentially permanently. It doesn't mean that love doesn't discipline, but instead it says love does not write down these wrongs and seek to pay back in kind but instead looks to Jesus and trusts the justice of God to deal with the offender. Love is not irritable or resentful. It's not glad about injustice, but it is glad. It rejoices with the truth. I don't rejoice when other people suffer, even if they suffer for their sin. But instead, I rejoice when they hear the truth, when they apply the truth, and when they grow. And in my own life, I rejoice when people tell me the truth because that helps me to be more like Jesus. Love doesn't rejoice in injustice, but rejoices with the truth. And then Paul summarizes by saying it is always hopeful. It never fails. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And again, what he's saying is this, that love simply never gives up. It may set boundaries. It may require discipline. But love continues to pray, continues to hope, continues to believe in the power of God to change a person's heart and life. Continues to believe in the power of God to speak and move through us as a body of Christ so we can reflect Jesus to the world. Love always endures. Zach read a passage from Romans 8 this morning during the worship set that perfectly encapsulates the love of God toward us. This idea that there is nothing, nothing in heaven and earth, on the earth, under the earth, above the earth, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. It just keeps on going. 
And so Paul says when we worship, when we serve, when we minister in a way that is self-seeking, we do not reflect the love of Jesus, but when we do those things in a way that reflects the enduring love of Christ, we will have an impact that we can't even imagine. So love reflects the character of Jesus Christ, which is why, finally, we say true love is eternal, lasts forever. Verses 8 through 13, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. In other words, he says, your spiritual gifts are going to go away. When we are in the eternal uh, heavens and earth with Jesus Christ, there's not going to be a need for knowledge because we will be in the presence of the all-knowing one. There's not going to be a need for prophecy because all prophecy will be fulfilled. There's not going to be a need for teachers because we can just go ask Jesus But love will still bind us together. And forever and ever and ever and ever, we will bask in and reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And he says, imagine spiritual gifts much like those things you did and said and thought when you were a child. They were appropriate for a particular period of time, right? So my five-year-old son loves to dress up like Superman and Batman and various superheroes, And it's fun and it's appropriate and it's a good time. But if I were dressed like that this morning, you'd get out your little book of records of wrongs, right? You'd write it down. Because it's not appropriate at my stage of maturity. And Paul says spiritual gifts while we were in this period of time, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back. They are what God has given us so we can reflect his kingdom well. With love. But love will last forever. And I think he says that love is the greatest because love is at the heart of God's character. See, God doesn't need faith because he sees everything. He doesn't need hope because he knows what's going to happen. But he is, John says, he is characterized by love. He always loves. And therefore, we are called to love says the spiritual gifts are much like looking in a mirror versus looking at someone face to face. They mediate our view of God. We see God dimly through these gifts of the Spirit. But one day we will see him face to face. And what we will see is the love that he expressed in Jesus Christ. And so love lasts forever. And so Paul makes this point powerfully, eloquently, that love makes our ministry matter. If we want to have an impact on the kingdom of God for eternity, we begin with this, that whatever God has given me, whether it is the ability to know, whether it is the ability to encourage, to teach, to serve, to lead, whatever gifts God has given me, I use them to love others. I use them to think of the needs of others above myself rather than to build myself up. And for many of us, that is... That is a challenge, especially those who may have gifts that are more visible. To say, I could use this gift to launch myself to some sort of platform, some sort of respect, some sort of 
fame in the eyes of others, or at least here locally. For those whose gifts may not be as visible, it may be a temptation to say, you know, I just really want someone to notice what I'm doing. And so we begin to serve with that motivation. Paul says, no, love serves and teaches and leads and encourages so that others can benefit in the body of Christ. Love makes our ministry matter. So briefly as we close, a couple of applications. First of all, meditate on verses four through seven this week. Maybe write them down on an index card and tape them to your mirror at home or in your car. Put them on your phone so you can get some sort of pop-up reminder about them throughout the week and read the characteristics of the love of Jesus and ask yourself, does my life reflect that love toward my roommates or my spouse or my kids or my coworkers or perhaps most significantly the other men and women in this room in the body of Christ? Am I patient or impatient? Am I kind or unkind? Am I rude? Am I envious? Am I boastful? Do I reflect the love of God in Jesus Christ? Meditate on chapter 13, verses four through seven. And then secondly, pray that the love of Christ, like it did for Paul, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us and fills up everything that we seek to do. When people look at you, when people look at me by the power of the spirit and for the glory of God, will they say, this is a person, this is a group, this is a church in which I see reflected the infinite love of the one who died and rose again for us. So we pray for the love of Jesus Christ so that our ministry and our service will last into eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. And what a convicting and challenging word it is because all of us at times are impatient or unkind or boastful. We're envious. We do take into account wrongs and we want to seek revenge. At times we don't rejoice with the truth like we should and at times we simply want to give up. So I pray you would empower us through your spirit to love as you love. I pray you would empower us to use our gifts to reflect the love of Jesus Christ. We thank you for providing for us in so many ways. Most of all, providing us Jesus himself. We thank you that through him we have life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.